the baptisms. And I know uh, Pastor Ralph was bummed yesterday. He really hurt his back and he was unable to baptize. Uh, but I know that being part of this ceremony was really special for him, even though he's on sabbatical right now. You know, today we're, I'm, I'm thrilled to continue our series in the book of Joshua. A series titled Strong and Courageous. Because that's the kind of people God wants you and I to be. And when we place our faith in Jesus, when we believe in Him and turn from our sins, God gives us His Holy Spirit. And He begins a work of transformation in our lives. But it's only as we submit to Him. And as we walk with Him, He'll give us the strength and the courage each day to honor and please Him. Today we're going to look at what it means to leave a legacy of faith with our lives. I was thinking about this idea of leaving a legacy recently, and I heard in the news a story of a baseball player that plays for the Arizona Diamondbacks. His name's Aaron Hill. He did something this year that's only been done once before since 1931, and that is that he hit for the cycle. And in baseball language, what that means is in one game, he got a base hit, a double, a triple, and a home run. And he's done that twice this year. And that's a significant accomplishment. Like I said, it wasn't done since 1931 by a guy named, by the name of Babe. Not Ruth. Babe Herman. Uh, he played for the Brooklyn Robins. That tells you, this was a long time ago. I didn't even heard of the Brooklyn Robins. He says in an interview that he, didn't re- he knew it was a big deal, but it really settled in when he got a phone call from Cooperstown, which is the Hall of Fame for baseball. And they asked him for his, his baseball cleats, his spikes, because they want to put it in their museum. And he says at that point he realized, wow, this, is, this was significant. And Aaron Hill will forever go down in history as the man who hit for a cycle twice in one year. That's his baseball legacy. And you get thinking, all of us have legacies that we're going to leave behind us. All of us. The question is, what kind of legacy are we going to leave now, no, for some of you today, the question of legacy might be really pertinent on your, on your mind. Perhaps you're getting older in years and you're thinking about, what will people remember me for? As one person said, you've got more in the rearview mirror than you have out the windshield. And you're wondering, what will I be remembered for? And sometimes you might think, well, I do want to be remembered to be, to be a, a, a good person. Maybe a loving person, a hard worker. And those things are good, but there's something greater of a legacy to be left behind than being a good person or a hard worker. There's something more important than thinking about, I want to be known as a person who worked at this company for a long year, long years. That's good, but there's a greater legacy to leave behind than to be a faithful employee. There's a greater legacy than how much money you leave for your children or what kind of home you live in or what kind of cities you visited. And these things are fun and perhaps even good, but they're secondary or even tertiary to the primary legacy that's of most important. And that legacy is the spiritual legacy. Will you be known as a man or a woman who feared God? Because that's the legacy that will endure. That's the legacy that makes a difference. Will you be remembered as one who worshiped God and was sold out for Him? So some of you are at the end, uh, thinking right now, with more in the rearview mirror than in the windshield. 
What will I be remembered for? And there's others of you at the opposite side of the spectrum. Maybe you're entering junior high this year or high school or college and you're wondering, will my life count? And and you're not sure and you want to make decisions today that are going to make a difference because what you do today, even in seventh grade, will affect what high school you go to. And what you do in high school may reflect what college you go to. And what major you choose may reflect what job you get. So the decisions you make even today will make a difference 5, 10, or even 20 years from now. And you're thinking, I want my life to count. And that's a good concern. But remember this. The greatest way your life will count, the greatest legacy you can leave, is a legacy of faith that is grounded in the worship of God. And it's never too late to begin that legacy, nor is it ever too early to begin that legacy. You will never be too old. So some of you may be looking, thinking, I've squandered a lot of life, or maybe my legacy has a lot of good things, but it's not a legacy as a spiritual leader. It's not too late. It's not too late. And others of you thinking, well, I'm young. I'm, I'm only 12 or 13, but it's never too early. See, God is a faithful God, and He wants all of who you are. And what we're going to see today is an amazing legacy that's left behind by Joshua and others in the nation of Israel. A legacy that endures to this day because it's a legacy that mattered. I don't know how big Joshua's house was. I don't know how much Joshua left behind financially for his family. But what we do see at the end of this book, Joshua says, Choose today whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua's legacy. What's your legacy? What will you do today that will matter then? Well, today we open up Joshua chapters 3 and 4 and take a look at a sweet legacy. And it's a story that has many themes and sub-themes in it. And you'll see it's kind of moving around throughout the story. But at the very end of the day, in the last eight verses or so, the story reaches its main goal and its main point, and it's the question of legacy. So let's turn our Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. And again, setting the stage, if you missed the last few weeks, the book of Joshua is about God's people, the Israelites, getting ready to enter the promised land. Their leader Moses had died, And now Joshua had come to replace Moses. And God said, Joshua, I'm taking you into the promised land. You're going to lead my people. And when you get there, yes, there will be some frightening things. There will be people there who don't like you guys. It's a place you've never been. Descendants of Anak live there. And Anak was a giant and his family and his descendants were giants. They were mighty warriors. They had fortified cities. And and God told Joshua, I want you to go there. Because I'll be with you. I will protect you. And I'll provide for you this land. And I will give you the strength to drive out the wickedness there and conquer the land. God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And last week we saw how Joshua, stepping out in faith, sent out spies to look into the land of Jericho to see what it was like and to begin to plan to get into the land. And the spies met a woman, a prostitute, by the name of Rahab. And it was this woman who, who showed a courageous kind of faith in hiding the, prost- hiding the spies 
and, and, and letting them leave safely. So when they came back to Joshua, they, they told him the report. They said, Joshua, we went in the land and their hearts are melting with fear. God has given us this land. And this is where our passage picks up. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. I love how Joshua rises early the next morning. There's an eagerness to obey God here. He's, he's ready to go. He got what he needed to hear. He got up first thing in the morning to obey the Lord. And boy, what a focus upon God. And oh, that we would wake up like that. Wake up first thing in the morning and say, God, what, what will I do today to obey you? And he got up and he got the people ready to get into the land. And it says that they were on the other side of the Jordan River getting, and, and they had to be ready to pass over the Jordan River. We're not told many details about how they're going to pass over just yet. And in fact, we won't find out until 12 verses later. But all we know is that God is going to prepare his people to get over this river somehow to enter into the promised land. And so this is what Joshua does. He gets the people ready. And what we're going to see is some amazing acts of faith that Joshua and the people of God reflect here. Look at verses 2. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. That's over a half a mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. In these verses, we see three lessons of faith of what it means to walk by faith. Because if we're going to leave a legacy of worship, if people are going to look to our lives, it begins with a life of faith, the kind of life that Joshua and the people of Israel reflect here. And there are three lessons. It's a lesson that a life of faith embraces, a life of faith enters, and a life of faith expects. What does it embrace, first of all? A life of faith embraces God's leading. Look at verse 2. At the end of... Three days, and the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from the place and follow it. Joshua tells them to follow the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box made out of wood and precious metals. It was a, it was a, a mastery craftsmanship. And inside the ark were the Ten Commandments, the law of the Lord, reflecting God's teaching. Also was a staff of Aaron that budded, reflecting God's mighty power to do that. And also and there was a, a bowl for manna, teaching God's provisions. And God made it be, when his ark was present, it would, it would uh, illustrate his presence with his people. So when they saw the ark, they remembered, God, you are with us. So when Joshua tells them, follow the ark... He's saying, follow God's leading. And this is at the core of a life of faith. 
is that we embrace God's leading in our life. God, uh, Joshua doesn't tell them, follow a hunch, follow your heart, do what seems right to you. Because Jeremiah 17, uh, 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So he's saying, don't trust your heart on this. Follow God. Don't do what seems right. Because Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but at the end, it leads to death. He didn't say, do what's right in your own eyes. Because in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And they did evil in the sight of God. Instead, Joshua tells them, follow God's leading. Follow the ark. Embrace God's direction. And he will lead you where you need to go. And as I think about that, I realize how God, even in our day, leads us in similar ways. Jesus said before he left that when he ascends into heaven, he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And his Spirit, in, in John 16, says... When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. Will you follow God's leading through his spirit? And it's easy to ask, well, how do I know God's leading me? And I've asked that question many times. All the time. And what we see as Jesus tells them that the spirit is coming, he says this of the spirit, that he will glorify me. And that's a question to ask. God, are you leading me in this? Well, I would know that if I know that I'm glorifying you. God, is, are my decisions glorifying you? Are they, are they pointing people to you? Are they pleasing to you? If so, then I'm following your lead. A life of faith embraces God's leading. And that's what Joshua and the people of Israel started out doing. We're following the Ark of the Covenant to where we're going. A second thing that a life, a second lesson that we learn from a life of faith is that a life of faith enters. What did it enter? Well, look at verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Joshua's telling them, you're going to enter into foreign territory. You've never been here. It's, it's unknown to you. And that's what a life of faith is all about. It's going places and following God where you don't know where he's leading. Now, I'm pretty sure most, if not all of you, came to church today without using your GPS. Pretty sure about it. And even if today is your first time visiting us here, maybe you're familiar with the area and you know the intersection and you didn't have to go to Google Maps because you're familiar with the area. You didn't depend on a GPS. You didn't depend on a map. You came here. And maybe you come here a hundred times and you could do it. It's like autopilot. But certainly there are places you've gone before that you didn't know how to get to. And you were dependent on your GPS. You were dependent on your map. And that is what walking by faith is. Because we go places following God where we've never gone before. Because if we knew how to get there, it wouldn't take as much faith. And yet when we walk into the unknown places... We depend even more so on God. God, help me through this. I don't know how this is going to end up, but I know you're carrying me through it, God. See, a life of faith enters into foreign territory, and that's okay. So, so don't bemoan the, the unknowns in life. Don't despise them, but see them as opportunities to walk by faith and not by sight. Israel was doing the same thing, following God's leading, 
because they didn't know where to go. They'd never been there. Joshua says, you have never been there before. You have not gone this way before. And as we follow God, that's how our futures are like. We've never gone there before. So a life of faith embraces God's leading. It enters into unknown territory. And the third thing we see here is that a life of faith expects great things from God. Look at verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I love that statement. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Confess your sin to God. Prepare your hearts to follow Him. And get ready. Because God's going to do something wondrous among you. I think about that and it kind of mourns me because I think in our day, it is very easy for, for Christians to, to not expect things from God. Now, not a selfish kind of, oh God, load my bank account kind of expectations, but an expectation that God's going to do mighty things in and through you. And sometimes we become so familiar with our brand of Christianity that, that we get so used to it. And we lose expectancy. Things are predictable. They're normal. They're the status quo. But, but what if, what if we said, God, I'm not going to just settle for, for the repetition of life, but I'm going to believe you for big things to use me in mighty ways. What if we said that? That God, I'm going to walk by faith expecting you to do mighty works. I love how jo- uh, Joshua just says it. Get ready. God's going to do something wonderful among you. He doesn't specify, and I wonder if even Joshua knew. All he knew is that God was doing something, and he was going to get them over to Jordan River. I think of uh, William Carey, the, the great missionary to India. He is known for this quote when he told the other missionaries and other people trying to excite them about missions. He says, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And he's telling them, you step out in faith and expect God to do great things. And in 1793, William Carey attempted a great thing for God and expected from God. And for 41 years, he would be a missionary to India without a furlough. And in 41 years of service, there was recorded 700 people who came to Jesus Christ through William Carey's ministry. 700 people. A man who attempted something great for God, expecting God to do it. William Carey translated the Bible into Bengali and six other major languages in India. The complete Bible, as well as 209 dialects of of parts of the Bible. He expected God to do it. He led social reforms in India that, that banned infanticide and assisted suicides. This is a man of God who wanted to see God do something great among people who didn't know him. And that's what walking by faith is. And man, how how I yearn for God to even do that in my own heart. I want to expect God to do great things. And I I want that for you too. That that we would wake up each day, say, God, I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm going to follow your leading. I'm going to go places where, where I don't even know. It might not be a dramatic place, but I'm just going to walk where I don't know where you're taking me. And I'm going to expect you, God, to do great things, to use me as your instrument. See, the legacy that we lead begins with a life of faith. So I ask you again, 
What kind of legacy will you leave behind? What kind of legacy can you begin today that others will say, I remember this man or this woman. They, they, they had faith in God. They walked by faith, not by sight. Well, this is what the nation of Israel was doing. They were getting ready for something big, although they may have not even known what it was going to be. In Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, God tells Joshua something very significant. He says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is some interesting language that God's going to exalt Joshua. You know, I think about that, that God, you should be exalted. You need to humble us. And I believe what God is saying here, he's going to bring Joshua to a place of respect and honor among Israel like Moses had. This is the same promise God gave Joshua in chapter 1. But here God is saying, I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to make you in a place today where people will look to you, Joshua, and say, you are the leader of this nation. I mean, I could think of the goosebumps that went down his back and his arms. Today, God, you're going to exalt me before the people to be their leader? I'm sure a, a mixture of fear and anticipation of, God, what are you going to do? And God gives them instructions. And from here forward, the story kind of goes back and forth like a movie where there's things that are happening simultaneously and one shot is here and another shot is there. And, and, and the story kind of jumps around between Joshua talking to the priests, telling them to take the ark to the, to the, to the uh, brink of the Jordan River. Joshua tells them to get 12 men from one person from each tribe and get ready to pick up some stones for a memorial. And at the same time, Joshua is telling God's people how to know that God will be with them. So as we look here in verse 9, Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. These are the people from Canaan. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And he goes on to tell them in verse 12 what God's going to do with that. He says, Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest, uh, the Lord of all the earth they shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from, from above shall stand in one heap. God tells Joshua two things, how to know that he's going to be with them. The first thing he says, I'm going to drive out the people of the land. And, and Joshua says, this is the living God. And I, I think of that name for God, the living God. This is to say that he's not a dead God. He's a God who's actively at work. He's a God who's going to do something for them. The second thing he says is that the people, the Levites, are going to take the ark at the Jordan River, and when they step their feet into the water, God's going to part it. He's going to, he's going to stop the waters from flowing. He's going to dry up the ground, and the people of Israel will pass through the Jordan River. Sound familiar? See, throughout the story, we see how God is taking Joshua and bringing him into a similar place where God had Moses. And he parts 
the river like he parted the Red Sea. And he says, the Lord of all the earth will do this. See, God is the God of all the earth because he, he's sovereign over it all. He controls creation so that he can cause water to stop flowing and dry up the ground. And God's about to do that in and through Joshua. Well, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we see how the Levites do just this. They walk up to the river and the water stops flowing and Israel moves forward through the river. A miracle. A miracle. And then as people are passing through, God had told Joshua to give instruction to 12 men, leaders, saying, pick up stones. Pick up 12 stones, one for each tribe. And use these stones as a memorial. And we have 12 stones here to symbolize what God is doing. Take these 12 stones and place them on the other side of the river as a memorial. Well, what for? He tells us in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 4. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you and this is it when your children ask in time to come what do these stones mean mean to you then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan the waters of the Jordan were cut off so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. God did a miracle and he tells them, pick up some stones, take them to the other side so that they will spark a conversation. So that they will spark a conversation between you and your children. So that the legacy of God's mighty works might be remembered into future generations. And we come to chapter 4, verse 19. He restates all that took place. And in verse 21, he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And then verse 24, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This story has a greater purpose. See, it's significant that God caused the waters to dry up. In chapter 3, verse, 10, verse 15, we're told that this is the, the, the rainy season, if you will, the flooding season, the harvest time. And the Jordan River normally would be 3 to 10 feet deep and 90 to 100 feet wide. And in the flood stage, it was wider and even deeper. And as, a, as significant as the drying up of the river is, this story is not primarily about the miracle. It's a means to an end. And although God exalts Joshua and the people of Israel in chapter 4, verse 14, stand in awe of Joshua like they stood in awe of Moses, and that's significant, that's not what this story primarily is about. It's an end to a, it's a means to an end. And even these stones that the, the people of Israel brought out, and as they started conversations and had opportunities to tell their children what God had done, 
The stones is not what the story is about. They are means to an end. We find out what the story is about in verse 24 with a big so that statement. The words so that tell us it's the purpose, it's the result of all that chapters 3 and 4 are mounting up to. God did this. He, he dried up the Jordan River. He exalts Joshua. He puts the memorial stones in place for this purpose so that, in verse 24, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord, your God, forever. The point of this story is that God would be worshipped because of what he did in and through Joshua. The Jordan River's drying up points to God's power. Joshua's exaltation points to the one who put him in place. The stones point to a conversation which points to God's mighty acts. And God tells Joshua, this is what it's all about, that the people would know me. He says in verse 24 that all the peoples of the earth may know, that's Jews and Gentiles, that they would know that God's hand is mighty. God is concerned about the magnification of his own glory. God is concerned that people would worship him. And for some people, that sounds like God is being selfish or being a little self-absorbed. Like, God, does it always have to be about you? And this is the beautiful thing. Because the Bible shows us that as we live for God and as we make His name known, we find the greatest joy in life. So when God says, you are to make me known, He's also not only exalting Himself, but providing for us joy in Him. So God's not being selfish but he's being loving. He's an amazing God. And I love how John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And, and that's what God's telling Joshua here. Let people know what, you, what I've done for you. Take joy in me. Exalt my name. Be satisfied in me. And in that way, I will be glorified. And I love how throughout the... the church history, the reformers in the, in the 16th century, one of the, the, the five calls of the Reformation was soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Because they recognize God, all things point to you. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, says the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that goes right in line with, with passages like Psalm 34, verses 1, 2, and 3 which says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear me glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Because as I exalt his name, he is glorified and I find joy in him. And that's what this story is pointing to. Pointing to. And it's a complete reorienting of our thoughts that our lives serve to point to God. And that's the kind of legacy he wants us to leave. So what kind of legacy will you leave? Will it be a legacy of worship? Will you point people to Jesus? To God's mighty acts? Well, it begins with a life of faith. Embracing God's leading. Entering into that unknown land and expecting God to do it. And then it goes out. You've got to go out and do it. You've got to walk by faith. 
And you've got to make God known. See, the focus in this passage, as as Joshua tells them to, to, to talk about God, is to talk to the children about God. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You are to tell them. And I want to talk to you now regarding that. There are many parents in the room, and there are many in the room without children. And wherever you are at, God is calling you to be a spiritual parent. Now, if you have children, your primary responsibilities are to them, your children in your home. And if you don't have children, you are to be a spiritual parent, bringing others under your wing and teaching them the ways of the Lord. Psalm 145.4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's how God's mighty acts are made known when one generation tells another. So I want to speak first to you parents about the great responsibility that's placed in your lap to teach your children the mighty acts of God and how to fear Him. And it begins with you, men. Men of the homes. You are to be the spiritual leaders in your home. You've got to say, I want my children to remember me to be a spiritual leader, a legacy of worship, a legacy of faith. It's upon you to do that. And I know there are many women here in your homes where your husband doesn't want that responsibility. And in this sense, you cannot wait for him. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful because God has called, calls a, in the marriage relationship for wives to submit to the husbands. And I'm not saying don't submit in, godly, in, in, in things. But what I'm saying here is, wives, you cannot wait for your husbands to lead your children spiritually. It doesn't mean cut the, your husbands off if they're trying. Encourage them. But if your husband chooses to not lead your children in the Lord... Take the bull by the horns and you do it. And God in His faithfulness will give you the grace and the strength to do it. Why? Because He's concerned for you and your children. So men, lead your homes and God may be calling you wives to do the same. Be the spiritual leaders. And I plead with you to have family devotions. One of the sweetest times that I have each day are family devotions with my children. And it's something that, that, that's taken many years for, for Erica and I to learn how to do. And I don't say this to boast. I say this is what God is teaching us. And it's still a work in progress. But I remember someone came up to me, several people, when I was a, young, a younger uh, father, when my children, because I was first born, saying, do you have family devotions? And I was like, no, we don't. And they told me to start them. And I was like, she's like three months. She's not going to get it. I'm like, start them now. Build that into your days. So I plead with you parents, have devotions with your kids. Maybe right before bed at night, get, get, a, get a children's Bible where you read through a passage each day. Pray with them every day. Sing songs with them. Sing the same song every night over and over until they memorize it. Sing hymns, beautiful hymns with, with theological depth. Your kids can memorize how great thou art or come thou found. They can or use even modern courses that, that, that move our hearts to worship. Teach your children how to worship God. It's your responsibility to do it. Just yesterday, as some, one of the testimonies were being shared, one of those who got baptized was saying how they, they looked out the window, saw God's creation, and thought of His power and His beauty. And for you parents, seize opportunities of, in everyday life with your children. 
to go on a walk, show them a tree. Say, think, who, how did that get there? God made that. Show them a bird and, and point out its beauty and how God did that. Show in creation how God, His mighty hands are, are at work. When you're in the car, when you go to the zoo, when you're at the park, when you're at home, teach your children the ways of the Lord. And let these be your memorial stones, your legacy. And again, we, we can't force our children to love the Lord, but we can teach them in the ways of the Lord and we pray for their salvation. And they will, when they come older, make a choice of whether or not to serve, but remain steadfast. And I know some of you have older children and maybe you can't sit down and have family devotions because your kids aren't in the house anymore or maybe they're older. But be an example with them. Try to pray with them. Say, how, how, how are things going? Can I pray with you? And just pray with your child. And I know these things are difficult. But we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Expect great things from God. And plead with Him. And I know there are others here who don't have children. And God is calling you to be a spiritual parent. You know, John Calvin was once chided for not having children. And he says, what are you talking about? My children are throughout the world. Because his teachings went forth and he raised up disciples who loved God. And even to this day, people look to his teachings and say, this man knew and loved the word. And would it be said the same of you, that you raised up men and women who feared God. Joshua tells us that, that God is the living God earlier. And teach somebody, put them under your wing and say, this is how God is at work today, even as he was in the time of Joshua and the time of Moses. Do you remember what we said last year? That that's our God. He is here, he is there, and he will always be. Teach somebody. Put them under your wing say, I want to teach you the ways of the Lord, that our God doesn't change. He's the living God. You know, there's a teaching among deists that God put the world in orbit like a watchmaker and let it go. And he's, ha- he's been hands off ever since. And just like a watch just goes on each day on its own. They say that's how God lets the world go. So whatever happens, happens. That's not the God of the Bible. Our God, yes, he is transcendent. He is above all, but he's also imminent. That is to say he is working in and among his creation. See, the Bible tells us that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He doesn't just watch from afar, but He's the living God who comes among us. And, and Hebrews says that He sympathized with our weakness. Jesus came. He was tempted in every way. That's what Hebrews tells us. But He was without sin. So that we can look to Him as our great high priest. And he can, we can come to Him and say, God, help me. And Jesus says, I, I'm here for you. I died for you. I can give you life if you trust in me. And tell someone about the good news. Raise up a spiritual child in the fear of God and they can profess, I know that God is the living God because you taught me that. He's the Lord of all the earth. He doesn't change. He intervenes. He works for the good of those who love Him according to Romans 8.28. He gives us joy. He convicts me of sin. He restores me. Let that be your spiritual heritage. Leave a legacy of worship. Teach them the fear of the Lord. Again, going back to Joshua 4.24, God did this so that all the people of the earth may know 
that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And that's what we want people to see. And that the fear of the Lord may be in them. To fear God is to recognize His might. There's a sense of fear where we recognize that God hates sin. God hates sin. And in and, and His righteousness, he, He's going to execute judgment upon sin. His wrath is coming, the Bible tells us. And there's a certain fear of God that comes by that reality. But that same fear of God should draw us to God, not push us away from Him. Because as we fear God for His wrath, we also fear and reverence and honor and celebrate Him for His unfailing love. And Jesus took that wrath for us. Again, yesterday, is the, one of the testimonies were being shared at the baptisms. Somebody said that they at one point had a, a keen awareness that God's wrath was upon them. But it didn't cause them to run away. But that person said, I went to church and I went to get to know who this God is. See, the fear of God recognizes His judgment and His justice, but also turns us to Him to explore and understand and embrace His love and forgiveness. See, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the vision of God, do you remember his response? He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw God's holiness and it brought fear to him. But that same fear drove Isaiah to say, when God said, who's there? Who who can I send? Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. He feared God, but it drew him towards God. So as we leave a spiritual heritage and we do some spiritual parenting as disciple makers, let us teach others the fear of God, of His His justice and of His love and of His mercy and might. And let that be our spiritual heritage. What kind of legacy are you going to leave behind? It's never too late to think about that. And I pray you think about it today. doesn't matter how short out the windshield looks to you. What can you do now? And no matter how young you might be, junior high or high school or college or after college, what you do today, make it count for God. Let people see you as one who walks by faith and not by sight. One who fears God. And one who tells others about about God's working. Would you do that? Would you point people to the God of all the earth, the living God, pointing your children, pointing your spiritual children, so that God might be exalted? And in so doing, I know you will find the greatest joy in life. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. God, to you alone be the glory. To you alone, O God, to you alone be the glory, we pray with the psalmist. Not to us, but to you, God, be the glory. And the Lord, as we look at Joshua and the people of Israel, and how they stepped out in faith, expecting you to do wonders among them, God, you did it. And God, how their obedience preceded your miracle, God. And may we be people who step out ready for you to do it, Lord. Oh God, may we not hold back. May there be a sort of reckless abandonment in our obedience to you, saying, God, it's all on the line, for we want you. So Lord God, may that be our legacy, not our bank accounts, 
not our travel endeavors, not our jobs, not our degrees, but our worship of you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.